without fail, whenever you move away from home in a black family and you come back for a visit, your family gonna find a way to say something about your size. You've been eating, ain't it? You've been eating good, ain't you? I'm like, maybe, but what are you trying to say? Like, why? Well, mm, you ain't missing them. You ain't missing no meals. I that's that. I don't take that kindly. Yes, I'm eating. Yes, I'm enjoying my food. And yes, I'm still fine as wine. Leave me the fuck alone. What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourners Bench, a podcast by Theo Lab Media. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm the top 44th gay. Alrighty. <laughs> I am. I'm Malcolm David. I'm always upset at Brandon. That sounds like a personal problem. Today's episode is inspired by the year-end altar call extravaganza part one. We are going to talk about diet culture, body positivity, and food policing. Over the course of the episode, we will also share a little about our own relationships to food and our bodies. Today's episode is inspired by a Mourner's Bench listener, Miss Natalie Faria from Lakeland, Florida. And we couldn't imagine having the discussion without her. So we are thrilled to welcome back to the bench, Miss Natalie Faria. Hello, everybody. Hi, Natalie. Welcome. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Thank you. So some of you may remember Natalie from episode 21, the end of year altar call extravaganza part one. And Miss Natalie didn't come to play with y'all. She put diet culture on the bench and reminded some informed others that diet culture is just another tool used by white supremacy, misogyny, and patriarchy to perpetuate white male standards of beauty. She said all of it, honey. Go back and listen. So for everyone thinking about your body, dieting, being summertime fine, and going back to the gym to get some dumbbell COVID cooties, this one is for you. But before we get into that, a few announcements. First up, we have a favor to ask of each one of you. Do us a solid. If you've been enjoying The Mourner's Bench, take a moment to send a link to your favorite episode to a friend or family member who you think would enjoy the podcast. Tell them why you enjoyed the episode and why you think they'll enjoy the podcast. Relatedly, if you're a new listener or even an old listener who has yet to connect with us personally, send an email to WhatsApp at theolabmedia.com. Let us know you're out there. As you can tell by the last couple of episodes, we love to connect with listeners and we'd love to connect with you in a more meaningful way. You can also sign up for our newsletter by visiting theolabmedia.com. This is another way to stay up to date on the Mourner's Bench and other Theolab Media projects. Last but not least, another way you can show us some love is by visiting patreon.com backslash theolabmedia. Visit Patreon to become a supporter of the Mourner's Bench and Theolab Media. And if you do, you'll get access to exclusive content. In 2021, we'll be releasing extended interviews, raw, unedited footage, probably of Brandon making sexual jokes, (laughs) video content, and more. Visit patreon.com slash theolabmedia to learn more. That is a 2022 project. It's going to be called Theo Lab After Dark. <laughs> It'll feature story time with Brandon. Madonna videos where Sam is Madonna. <laughs> and more. Stay tuned. All right, let's get into it. So first things first, I want to name the elephant in the room. We're talking about our bodies and our relationships to them. And that can be awkward or weird perhaps anxiety-inducing, or even for others, it can be a little triggering. So to get things started, let's talk about what we're bringing to the conversation. Sam, what you carrying with you into this conversation? I love food. I do. I, I, I love food. Uh, the relationship with my body has been tenuous over the course of my life. I've always been a large person, even as a young person, even as a child in school, which resulted in some bullying when I was a kid. I would have bullied you in school. I definitely would have bullied you. Let me tell you, kids are like the meanest thing in the world. As a child who was bullied, that's how I felt anyway. I was just like, oh, some people are just the worst. Actually, I wouldn't, I would not have bullied you for real, Sam, because I wasn't the kid that actually bullied. I just instigated bullying. So like, I would have been like, hey, Malcolm, you should go over there and make fun of Sam. Man, you and then Malcolm would have been like, and Malcolm would be like, Sam, rude joke. And then like Malcolm would be like, but Brandon told me to. Who me? I can hear you making that case. It's like, your honor, I didn't rob the bank. I drove the car. Yeah. Anyway. I didn't know what was happening. They got him with millions of dollars. <laughs> so you were also guilty of the of the same crime. But yes, yeah, so I've always had anxiety and insecurities about my own image. But it did not change my relationship to food. I still love food. 
I'm just saying. Yeah, so I I kind of have this um, perfect storm of body image stuff, which I think is not uncommon with many women, those who identify as female. Like I grew up with my mom always saying to herself, I need to lose five pounds, I need mm-hmm. to lose five pounds, or then it increased to I need to lose 10 pounds. And that's kind of a constant voice in my head. And I developed early, so, you know, so I was really uncomfortable with my body. People would make fun of me. I was also an athlete, but I always wanted to be better. So I wanted muscles in my arms or I wanted to be able to function better. So I always thought I needed to look a certain way and I couldn't get that way. And people would call me a boy all the time. And that also bothered me. And so there's this mix of gender and weight loss and body positivity or a complete lack of that. I grew up very disembodied and just trying to like just function in the world. And it wasn't until I came out that I started realizing that I had a body. And then that really happened. Pregnancy, childbirth, (laughs) parenting, these are all like major shifts. Like I learned I didn't have a body or I did I learned I had a body. I couldn't control what was going on. This explains so much about you, KT. Katie's <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what well, is that? Oh, that feels good. Shit. That's, you know, that's not how I got pregnant, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, storks. Not for the topic of the podcast. But after I gave birth without drugs or anything, like this amazing experience, I was like, I am a badass. I can do anything. I don't care if somebody calls me a boy. I don't, because I just did something better than anybody else in this world could ever do. I also had this experience of I'm, I'm going to have a girl. I've got to get rid of my body image stuff. Um, I haven't been able to do it, but I have a child, a 13-year-old girl who, she has the best body image. And even more so, like, if I started losing weight just because I was working out more and she's like, you're no fun to hug anymore because you don't have as much fluff on you. And I, in my head, I was like, this is so wonderful that this is what she has. And she has more of an idea of what I wrestle with now. But what I really wanted for her was to break that cycle. I really want to break that cycle for myself, but I'm glad that in some ways she has different issues. I grew up with a mom who said every day when I was walking out the door to go to school, you look handsome today. And it was uh, something that I sort of laughed off and, and didn't think about really at all as, as a child, but it was something that I heard every day from somebody that I loved and I trusted. The other thing I'll say, when I was a kid, I was extremely skinny. I know it sounds strange to say, but I was very, very self-conscious of that. I played baseball growing up and remember as a middle schooler and a high schooler trying as hard as I possibly could to put on weight. I was really, really thin and thought that there was kind of like something wrong about me. Like I, I wanted to be bigger. I wanted to put on muscle. The, you know, the joke on the baseball team is that my version of a home run was hitting the ball out of the infield. You know, like I just, I had no arm strength and could never hit the ball very far. I remember as a, a senior in high school, my, my stat line, I was six foot one and 117 pounds. I was very self-conscious about that and wanted to change that about myself. Um, I would say for me, I'm, I'm with Sam. I love food and <laughs> food is a big part of my life culturally. So I'm a first generation born American. My parents are not from here, neither of them. They're both from the Cape Verde Islands, which is a country off the West Coast of Africa that was a Portuguese colony. Food is huge for us. It is the centerpiece of every family gathering, of everything in life. Like if we're having people over, my mom is cooking like she's going to feed 100 people, even if there's only 20. So I would say that for me, food was a positive experience for a long time until it became correlated with weight and the way that your body looked. So I remember like just thinking, like listening to you all and thinking back on like my childhood experiences, like when I did start to gain weight is that about the time that I decided just to make myself as small as possible to try to disappear to not be on anybody's radar to hide myself as much as I could so I was super quiet all through school like I have a cousin who is two months older than I am and she was on the basketball team and she's she was very popular, very outspoken, very outgoing. She's very bubbly. And I think our families would say that I also have a lot of those qualities, but at school I was very quiet and very reserved. So everybody knew her and almost nobody knew me. <laughs> and so people would, like we'd be in classes together sometimes and our names would come up back to back and we have the same last name. People would be like, are you guys 
related? <laughs> like, we didn't even know that you existed. And I'm like, yes, that's by design. But I was never really interested in like dieting or diet culture. I never really wanted to change my body. I just didn't want people to see it. So I think I resonate a lot with KT. Like I grew up very much like not embodied. Like I, this, I didn't know what any of it was or what it did really. And I think really started to like be more embodied and have to like really take account of what is happening with my body when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and I was 17 and it was February and I had three more months left of high school and all of a sudden like this became like a very real thing like my body became a very real thing for me and I had to learn how to listen to her because she was going to give me lots of cues about whether or not my blood sugar was high or low and what was happening and if I needed to take insulin or if I had taken too much and it became really important for me to start to like integrate myself again but without that I'm not sure that I would be where I am now, which is always an interesting thing when we talk about like chronic illness and stuff. Like I would not say that I'm like grateful at all <laughs> for my pancreas not functioning normally, but I think in a lot of ways it did help me to come back to myself in ways that were really important. The first time that I became aware of my body is when my mother, I went with my mother to purchase pants and I was trying to buy like, I guess just a standard fit jean. And she's like, nah, you need to get these. I forget what the cut was called then, but it was some old Navy pants and it was like for the chunky kids. And it basically said everything except chunky on the jeans. And I was like, what, what you saying about me? And I was deeply offended, but I mean, <laughs> I got the chunky boy pants because that's the ones that would fit me the best. As I continued to just kind of be a little chunky kid, the majority of that got located in my chest. And so by the time I got to, and I'm grabbing them for those of you who can't see me, um, <laughs> it's just the process of loving my body. Um, but when I got to undergrad, I just had really large woman-like breasts is what the doctor called them. Gynecomastia is the condition. I don't even know why this has a label. And so it, I had a breast reduction <laughs> and they did a little bit of work on my nipples to try to make sure that they looked somewhat normal again in air quotes I mean and it didn't work in terms of like my nipples because of not just like when I go to the beach I'm winking or my nipples are all the time like one is closed and one is open so <laughs> I've had to learn to love that and embrace that as well and then fast forward a little bit more I think um, in terms of just my body uh, my partner one of the things that he loves to do that surprised the hell out of me is go to the new beach in Miami. And the first time we went, I was like, <laughs> you want me to do what? I'm a pastor. These people, <laughs> these people can't see my, what if somebody puts me on TikTok? There was no TikTok then, but Instagram. And so I think that's another way that I started to love my body a little, or try, or learn to try to love my body a little bit more is by embracing public nudity and not just, uh, public nudity in sanctioned areas. I don't just walk around street <laughs> that would be inappropriate. Um, I mean, but so I think that's kind of a progression of my relationship to my body. And I think I've tried to get to a place where I've learned to love it flaws and all, but still it's always a label attached to it. It's, it's either, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a little chunky today. I love that. So like the need to even profess or claim what it is that I look, how I look or how I feel or how my clothes are fitting. It still I mean, suggests that there's something there that needs to be worked out. All that leads to my relationship to food, which I think I have, uh, I, I, mm, mm, food is hard. <laughs> I, I'm, I was raised in the South and my, when my mother cooked, it was macaroni and cheese, green beans with like a big thing, a hog jowl, hog jowl in there, fried chicken chicken, fried fish, turkey and dressing, turnip green. I mean, it, sweet potatoes, but not just like a whole sweet potato, like sweet potato souffle with marshmallows on top that are toasted with like sugar in the mig and all the things in there. So like it was just all of the things and that's how I learned to eat. And so like when I got to be a single person, I would prepare meals for a four person family. And I would be the only one to eat it. So I would eat the whole sweet potato souffle. <laughs> and I would eat all of the macaroni and cheese. And then after that, when I was living the bachelor life and trying to fit like I was a heterosexual, I guess, I was eating burgers all the time. Like burgers and fries were my favorite meal. I actually just like hamburgers. Even as a homosexual, I love hamburgers and I love French fries. And my partner's always like, please stop eating hamburgers. If you eat another hamburger, please stop. So then I get a chicken burger. But anyway, so <laughs> but I, I think I have like a... If, if, if my relationship to food were a Facebook status, it would be, it's complicated because I unintentionally or subconsciously do engage in what is named as diet culture. I will 
radically shift what I'm consuming. In the past, I would say nine times out of 10, that's been because I wanted some sort of physical outcome. I wanted my body to look different. Now I have a partner who is mindful about what goes into our bodies. And so the food that I consume, I don't actually expect some sort of physical outcome, but just for our own physical health and well-being, being more mindful of the food that we take in and how it makes us feel and not necessarily labeling my food choices bad or good, but understanding what is the outcome of the food that I'm eating? What am I hoping to um, obtain or gain by eating this? Yep, I know that I'm super stressed right now and I don't care that I just ordered a double sack with extra bacon from Five Guys. That's what I want. I'm not going to judge the choice, but I'm going to be aware of the fact that I'm taking that into my body and, and even do so intentionally. And maybe that means that I need to go to Chopped because I, I, I don't like to cook, but I do. But I need maybe I need to go to Chopped and get a salad tomorrow because not because salads mean I'm going to be skinny, but because I ate like a half a pound of beef last night and potatoes. So I need some veggies. I'm glad you said that, Brandon. That's something that I was thinking about in terms of my relationship with food. Because I think for the last five years, it has become increasingly less about what my body physically looks like and how my body is physically functioning. And I think I came to a point after a stay in the ICU for about four days in 2011, and I found out that I was diabetic. I found out that I had hypertension. I found out that I had high cholesterol. I came to the realization that my relationship with food, not food itself, my relationship with food was killing me. And that unless I made some changes to my relationship with food, it was going to affect how long I'm here on this earth. And at the end of the day, that had nothing and still has nothing to do with my size. We learn how to treat our bodies and how to relate to food from our family members, from our um, communities, from religious communities, from our friends. And there's a lot that goes into developing a relationship to food and to our bodies. And so I think for anybody that's asking these same questions, if you don't know what your relationship to food or your body is, maybe start with thinking about your family tradition. Start thinking about um, what you do when you hang out with friends. Do you go to brunch every Saturday? And what does that mean? What does that do for you? What does the food that you take in do to your body? And what are your desired outcomes when you're eating? Again, not to judge the choice, but just to develop an awareness of those things so that we're not going passively through life with a relationship to food and our bodies that someone gave to us. And then also subconsciously passing that off to others. Uh, But I do want to expand the conversation a bit. So Natalie, your New Year's Eve altar call is what got us here. And the thing that has stayed with me the most has been your assertion, with which I agree, that diet culture really is grounded in white supremacy, patriarchy, and white male standards of beauty. Now, again, I totally agree with this, but press your claim. Sure. So I think the kind of easiest jumping off point is when you look at diets, right? So there's all kinds of fad diets that come out Um, right now. Whole 30 is huge because it's the beginning of the year. Lots of people do whole 30 for 30 days. So I've been seeing a lot of that in my Instagram feed. But things like keto, Atkins, South Beach, name it. One, they're mostly the same. (laughs) Two, they were all created by white men. And and it's really interesting when you start to look at like the histories of these diets. So if you look at keto, for example, keto is very low carb, very high protein. And it is a legitimate treatment for children who have epilepsy. So in clinical trials, in studies, in research, they found that for kids who suffer with seizures, a keto diet is actually really good for them, can keep seizures at bay. A secondary, non-important other thing they found was that they were also lost weight. And so people then capitalized on that and said, ah, well, if you do the keto diet, then you can lose weight. And it wasn't meant for anyone other than kids who have epilepsy. Similarly, we're seeing these huge fads in like being gluten-free and being dairy-free. I hate to break it to the world, but people have been consuming gluten and dairy since the dawn of time. And just now we've decided that it's a problem. And for some who have gluten insensitivities, people who have lactose intolerance, people who have celiac disease, yes, absolutely cutting out gluten and dairy is going to be incredibly beneficial for them and healthier for them. But for the general population, those things don't make any difference. So I think a lot of it is like, we have to start asking critical questions about where these things come from and why we're participating in them. And do we have a valid health reason to be participating in them or not? So I think that's like the first kind of major thing. All of these things were created by white men who have 
an ideal standard of beauty, which is thin white women. And you can also see this in popular culture over time, like the standard of beauty and also the way that women's clothes have been sized over time has shifted dramatically. So if you look at someone like Marilyn Monroe, I think, and let's not quote me on this, but I think she was like a size six or eight in her time. Today, she would be like a size 14. So already <laughs> we can see like the fashion industry has also been taking cues about what is the ideal standard of beauty and how do we convince women to shrink themselves more and more. And like, if we look at someone like Marilyn, who was such, um, she was the beauty standard for her time that then like the shift in the seventies, eighties, nineties, even the sixties, starting in the sixties started to be like very thin, stick thin women. So there's the first kind of thing. The second thing is that the BMI is what is used by doctors to determine whether or not people are overweight or obese, right? So there are categories, underweight, in weight, overweight, obese. And then I don't know, there's a fourth category that's like morbidly obese. Okay. So morbidly obese, which even to begin with calling it, that is like, okay. But so BMI has its roots in racism and the creator of the BMI was was one of these scientists. He wasn't a medical professional in any way. He was like a mathematician and scientist who studied white populations. So like the French, he studied these populations. And even in his study, the way that he talked about BMI was to talk about an average of a population. It was never meant to be talked about on an individual basis. And he said this himself, but he was also working with scientists who were trying to create a scientific theory that black people were an entirely different species that were prone to violence and criminal activity and all of these things. And so these things are enmeshed with each other. And so wait, <laughs> this is another time where white people are trying to construct something scientifically, mostly just about black people's bodies. Right. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred about black people's bodies. We just going to, we, we trying to call y'all all fat. <laughs> so we going to do some science. <laughs> but also without ever researching any other, any black populations, right? So they weren't doing any of this research on people of color or black people. They, it was only based off of white people. So white, white men, right. especially. Yes. So <laughs> wow. those kind of th those two things are the big, like, hallmarks and the foundations of diet culture and also things like the BMI, which have nothing to do with health, exactly. weren't developed by doctors. Exactly. And then it's the kind of, you know, this gets more insidious as you go. Insurance companies start using the BMI yep. to talk about things like life insurance and health insurance and to discriminate against people who are in higher BMI categories because supposedly being overweight and obese will decrease your life expectancy. The most fascinating thing that I have learned has been that there is something that they call the obesity paradox or the overweight paradox, which is that people who fall under the overweight and obese categories actually live longer than people in the underweight or in weight categories. And scientists and doctors right now don't have any way to explain that, right? Because what they push is like, you need to lose weight. You need to be within a certain weight to be healthy. And all of the data tells us that that's not true. And that in fact, being in these BMI categories is probably going to lead you to live not nearly as long. Yeah. Um, it's, which is just wild. It's wild. The most liberating thing that's ever happened to me in a doctor's office is that I had an, uh, it was an Indian man who was my doctor and he was the sweetest man. And he looked at me one time after he was telling me about my weight and he was following the charts and whatever the BMI said he was supposed to say. And he said, this says you obese. But this is for white people. Yeah. And I was like, yes, doc. Yes. He says, like, no, you're not obese. There's nothing that you need to do. There's nothing that you need to change. You don't even need to worry about what this chart says. And like, I wish there were more doctors that would say that to yes. people on a more regular basis. Right. I'm still stuck on the notion that this has origins, not just in, let's say, white men trying to control the image yep. uh, or the body image of black people, but really in the systematic dehumanization of black people yeah. at its core is to say that you are less than human because your body is this. It's to say this justifies this kind of white supremacist um, ideology that black people are not equal. And so in an attempt to use every tool at our disposal, we're going to, we're going to attack your body image, we're going to say because you look the way you look, you are not 
a full human person, a full human being. That is insane. Yeah. Wow. And that no, that people have been so entrenched in it that they don't even have any curiosity about it to then do the research themselves to look into these kinds of things to say, well, where did this even come from? And why, why do I have these thoughts and ideas and like, maybe I should start asking some questions about where this stuff actually came from and how it got implemented and now is being used as like a standard of health that literally means nothing. And it's not, and it doesn't even capture, it's not even accurate for many white people as well. Like there's there's no way I could get to a, a health normal or whatever that middle ground is, there's no way that I could do it and be healthy. I mean, I would have migraines all the time. Like, I, thankfully, I'm like, it is not, like I will never be the person who will stop eating because that's just not me. But I still wrestle with the fact that there is, in my worst days, right, there is no way I can get to that number. And so I have to have to just ignore it right which isn't necessarily dealing with it but the reality is it doesn't fit for me and and I'm a white person from Britain Germany you know and it doesn't fit my body um yeah which goes again to like they did all of this stuff they studied all of this on men who naturally carry less body weight because they don't bear children and it's like well, yeah, obviously women are going to be different. Our bodies aren't structured the same ways because biologically there are things that women do that men can't. And so our bodies have evolved to handle that kind of stuff. Natalie, with diet culture and body positivity, I think one of the main things that I've heard in conversation with you and in my own reading is just that this isn't actually a male thing. It's not a white male thing. It's not a white woman thing even. Well, mm-hmm. white women have tried to co-opt it, but that's a different story. Maybe we'll get into that later. But this is something that black and brown women, black fat women, brown fat women, um, and those are the terms that they claim have worked on to not, to counter diet culture, right? Mm-hmm. To move against that. And so I, I want to just acknowledge the fact that we're having a conversation about something that for some of us can be an abstraction. I don't think for any of us, our bodies or food are abstractions, but that there is real work being done by women of color rooted in challenging these things. So I think you named a couple of things that I want to make sure that we touch on. So we have no problem calling people thin or skinny, right? but we do have a lot of baggage and hangups about calling people fat. And the reason why is that we've been taught that fat is a bad word. Um, When parents are like walking around and little kids are like, oh, that person's fat. They're like, no, 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 don't say that. Right? Yes. My mother, my mother made me call them healthy. She said, we don't say fat, we say healthy. So you're automatically trained from a young age to, to see fat as bad. Right. So not only do you see the word as bad, but you see the person as bad, right? So you don't call them what they are. And so I think that's been like a really important thing that body positivity communities and also fat positive communities are trying to change the narrative around is like, fat is not a bad word. Fat is a descriptive word, just like skinny or thin or short or tall or whatever else you want to use to describe people. We have to take it's one of those things, you know, they're reclaiming the word, right? We're trying to take it and bring it out of its negative connotation and just say, no, it just is what it is. And so, yeah, a lot of black and brown fat women, white fat women have no problem using that word. And there are some who are not comfortable with it, right? So they will say people with in larger bodies or people living in larger bodies. And that's totally fine too, if that's your preference. I have come to a a place where I don't view fat as bad and so I don't have a problem saying it so the other thing that's important to highlight is body positivity right so there's been this huge movement for body positivity which is wonderful but the roots of the movement are with black and brown fat women who are marginalized on a number of levels right because of their skin color because they're fat and started this movement for body positivity as a way to fight that marginalization, right? And to reclaim what it is to be comfortable in their own bodies. And it has been incredibly co-opted, right? You see body positive everywhere. Like it's like a very hip thing to do. And I think a lot of the work that needs to be done now is to move away from using that because that is for a specific community and to use things like self-love, body image, body love, those kinds of things 
are fine to use as like a self descriptor, but body positivity and the body positive movement is not for everyone because the last thing that people of color need is for white people to come in and co-opt more things that don't belong to them. So I think the movement to start to get people to talk about that, there's a large self-love and body positive community on Instagram, which is how I've started to learn all of this and to, to kind of be involved in the community. And there was a movement for, this is like, you know, a couple months ago in the pandemic for white women, especially big white influencers who like have a lot of following and also have thin privilege, but are eating disorder recovering people. So there's like, there's so many layers to this, right? So, so yeah. I mean, it's like, like more than one episode can handle. But right, exactly. Like yeah. So, so there was a kind of movement to call out these white women to say, Hey, stop using this term. It's not for you. It was never meant for you. And you're co-opting it to be something that we don't want it to be. So don't use that term. You start to use these other terms. What instead. I want to name is like, and I can't name it this way. I'm not, I know this is not mine, but what I'm trying to do for folks who are not embodied as black women or women of color is to say, it's not yours. You don't own it. You don't control it. It, it, it didn't come into existence to help you frame your life. However, right. comma, it, it actually is for you. So that the yeah. next time that you're scrolling through Instagram and you see Lizzo or Nicole Breyer or any other woman who's celebrating herself and pole dancing no matter her size no matter her shape no matter that you might figure out new language for responding to that and that through and by you learning a new language to name that or to observe that or to appreciate that you might learn new language for yourself yeah so let it be a light but it's it, but it ain't yours yep i love thinking about how black folks interact with these conversations because I call Sam fat at least once a week or have some sort of fat joke about Sam once a week. And so like, I think about my family being like, oh, we are body positivity now. We always call people fat. We ain't got no problem naming people as, as I see them. But I think that there is like, it's not just about naming it. There is a right. spirit with which you name it. Exactly. And can there be humor with that? Absolutely. But like, it's not just about naming it. It is about how you name things. Right. And I think that goes along with the stigma around it. Right. So if there's still stigma around being fat, even if you don't have a problem using the word, like you're using it in a stigmatized way. So you're not, that's not it. That's not what we're Correct. after here. Say that Correct. again for the Correct. people in the back, specifically for Brandon. <laughs> I already named it for myself, ho. So that seems like a good spot for a break. Let's take a quick pause. And when we return, we'll share a few resources, tips, and tricks for developing a more loving relationship with our bodies. And then after that, the altar call. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, peeps, it's Pastor Sam. This year, Theolab Media is planning to bring you a few additional podcasts and other digital content. This March, Dr. Lisa Weaver will join the Theolab Podcast Network with a new podcast entitled Healing Jephthah's Daughters. In this podcast, Lisa will deploy family systems theory, biblical criticism, and storytelling to explore the childhood traumas women and girls experience at the hands of their fathers and guardians. To learn more, visit theolabmedia.com. Why can I hear myself in somebody's background? There is an echo. And then you said peeps. I'm like, are we talking about like the Easter candies? So the Mourner's Bench is supposed to be a place where we experience new birth and or sanctification. That's what the Wesleyan said anyway. For the next few minutes, let's think together about how we live into more life-giving relationships with our bodies, food, and other things that sustain us. Part of becoming embodied is um, it has helped me with my prayer life. Like I realize now that God talks to me or I can sense God's presence physically. So it's my, if it's a warmth in my chest or it, I can feel God putting God's hand on my shoulder. I cannot imagine what, what I was missing as, as a child and having no connection with my body. So I have learned that being embodied has helped me be in more contact with God. I 
I also have to work out just for my own mental health and for the safety of those people around me. So I do a couple things. One, I love to swim. It gets me in that competitive athlete kind of way of being. I can't do that every day. It's not healthy for me. I become way too competitive, but I can do it for a couple times a week. But the thing that I do that most people laugh about is I do jazzercise. I have no rhythm. I don't know how to dance. I, um, I do jazzercise because I cannot think my way into it. I, I go and I mess up and I step the wrong way and all of that. But for me, it is a way that I am deeply in my body. And that's what I tell the instructors. I say, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm just going to do, I'm just going to be moving. But for some, some reason, it is, um, it gets me in touch with who I am. And I also have to listen to what my body can do. And that's changed as I've gotten older. As I've gotten older, I also can't eat the same foods because like you were saying, Pastor Sam, like my body reacts differently. So the more I am in touch with what my body can do, the more I can be myself. I encountered uh, a book a couple of years ago. It's a book written by uh, Luke Timothy Johnson called The Revelatory Body. The basic argument that he makes is that Christian theologians throughout history have oftentimes thought of the body as a set of impulses or as a kind of reality that needs to be sort of tempered or reshaped or reformed by some truth that would come from outside of it. So he talks about this sort of inductive form of theology where instead of thinking about bodies as the sort of receivers of this external truth or what is holy or what is right or what is good, that we ought to instead think about our bodies as participating in God's goodness. It's kind of the theater within which God's goodness unfolds. One of the points that Luke Timothy Johnson makes in this book is that actually, no, we should be paying attention deeply to all aspects of our bodies. He talks a lot about the diversity of bodies. And he says, you know, look, people look different. They act different. All, you know, there is no sort of normative standard. Bodies are, are varied and different and, and diverse and unique. And that shows us something of God's character. And we might try to practice God's delight in this diversity. I think his book is a is a really helpful resource and a way to kind of start reimagining how we might see our bodies as actually um, a space, a, a, a place where we encounter the divine. I don't necessarily know that I have any like nuggets for anybody um, when we're thinking about this, other than the fact that love the body that you're in. Like this is, you know, God God has given you life in this body for a reason. Enjoy it, love it, embrace it appreciate it. Don't let Brandon make you feel bad about it. You better try Jesus. Don't try me. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my God. I love that talk so much. I think my, my grounding for this spiritually is rooted in the incarnation. Our bodies matter because we believe in a God who became embodied. That should mean something to us and it should mean something about our bodies. And that should be the starting place for us to start to reclaim the goodness of our bodies and the care that we take with them, right? So not to be concerned about the size of your body, but to be concerned about the health of your body because it matters or God wouldn't have taken on flesh. I think the other thing that's become really important for me as someone who theologically is grounded in liberation theology and the idea that God stands with the marginalized and the oppressed and that that is God's main concern is that fat people also live on the margins, right? So we talk about the orphan and the widow and um, the foreigner and people of color and black people and poor people and people who are experiencing homelessness and people who are sick and people who are imprisoned. And there's all of these ways that people are marginalized. And I think the one that we don't talk about enough is that fat people are also on the margin and are consistently ridiculed and demeaned and made to be less because of the size of their body. And if we're truly, for me, right, if I'm truly looking for liberation for all of us, then that means every intersection where people experience oppression also, like those are the people who need to be liberated for us all to be liberated. Trans people, queer people, fat people, black people, women, we're not gonna get anywhere until all of those people can lead lives in which they 
are flourishing, not just surviving, but actually living a life that is meaningful and thriving without, without people constantly marginalizing them and stigmatizing them. And on the ground, I was, as you were talking, I was like, how does this work in religion? How, how do religious communities participate in body shaming and marginalization of fat people? And I was just thinking about religious imagery. Like if you think about the types of images we see, like, so, so when I think about Christian religious imagery, the most prominent image is the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Everybody got the same body type. Yep. When I think about Jesus on the cross, Fat Jesus ain't on the cross. Jesus, and some of them pictures, I'm like, Jesus is a little cut. Like, okay, I know he's being crucified and shit, but he kind of cut. Like, like all of our, if all of our images only celebrate certain body types, then that is another type of marginalization. If it's the case that as you're producing COVID worship, you're subconsciously only calling certain body types to be on the screen because that's the aesthetic you want people to associate with your church. You got a problem. Yep. So like there are all kind of ways, just as we were saying on that episode, where we were responding to the bullshit in front of the Capitol. There are all kind of ways in which our everyday lives participate in this. And is it difficult to figure out how to challenge the entertainment industry? Is it difficult to figure out how to change the entire culture? Yeah, it's hard. And the question that we always ask here on the morning's bench is what is your most faithful next step? And it might mean if you're a painter, go paint a fat Lord's supper. Let's take a break. All right, the time has come and the hour is nigh. We've come once again to the end of an episode and you know what that means. We've got to go back to the altar and tarry a little while for the spirit. We got to put somebody on this here mourner's bench. If you missed a couple of episodes ago, Sam made the entire country the mourner's bench. So you ain't even got to move. Stay right where you are. Find the hardest chair in your house. And if you hear something that resonates with your spirit, sit your ass on that chair and don't get up until the next release of the mourner's bench. <laughs> Who's on the bench? Um, I would like to put any celebrity that is pushing detox cleanses in the new year. So like think tea me, skinny tea, whatever it is. For the purpose of weight loss, you're on the bench. What about them people that be pushing that like saran wrap around your waist? Oh, <laughs> you're on the bench too. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I think it's just it's crazy to think about like the things that these teas do to your intestinal system and your colon that is like at not what your body is supposed to do. Um, and people buy this shit because it's a celebrity pushing it. Yep. So if you're a celebrity and you're pushing these diet culture cleanses, you're on the bench. But I'm on there. I won't put on the bench all those aerobics instructors with the with the blonde ponytails. You know that, and the like fancy little like colorful legging things. You know that they're going to be yelling at you. <laughs> And you know that they're going to be drinking their juice and they're going to have their fancy water bottles and all that. Uh, Maybe that's me, but they can still go on the bench. That might be my issue. I'm realizing that while I'm sitting here on the bench since Sam has put me there forever. You can sign up for a different class, girl. (laughs) Katie's like, I hate the way they yell at me, yet I'm going to keep logging in. I can't stand Santa Claus and I will still write every single letter every single year for my child starting in June. (laughs) I have started going to different classes because I enjoy having people who have regular sized bodies and not regular, not normative, different size bodies. Well, more close to your body type. Yeah. <laughs> My body type. <laughs> I say, sir. I love it. I was going to say I, I don't recognize anything that you describe, but that's because of what I look at. I look at Shanti doing cross training, so he doesn't have clothes on half the time, and I'm this guy. <laughs> Who else is on the bench? I'm, I'm actually putting my mother on the bench. She may or may not ever listen to this episode. I'm going to send this episode to her. But if she does, she needs to go on the bench because she is she is very guilty of body shaming. Um, it's something that she's she's done with me for a, a, a lot of my life. But it's something that she also does with my nieces and nephews, or mostly my nephews, not my nieces. 
And not not I, I don't want to give her a, a pass or excuse her for oh this was something or the, how they came up or something, but it's, it's it's certain little comments that are just I, I feel like really destructive and unacceptable. So, Mama, you on the bench? See, and I feel like that's a black Southern thing. I don't know if white people do this, but without fail, whenever you move away from home in a black family and you come back for a visit, your family gonna find a way to say something about your size. You've been eating, ain't it? You've been eating good, ain't you? I'm like, maybe, but what are you trying to say? Like, why? Well, mm, you ain't missing. You ain't missing no meals. I that's that. I don't take that kindly. Yes, I'm eating. Yes, I'm enjoying my food. And yes, I'm still fine as wine. Leave me the fuck alone. (laughs) I feel like that's a really universal experience. There is a a Latinx woman dietitian that I follow and she posted something for the holidays and she was like, um, mija estas gorda, which means like, honey, you you look fat, um, is not a greeting. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, amen. She's so right. So right. I'm going to put on the bench the intertwining of diet culture with capitalism. It is amazing to me how much money you can spend on exercise equipment. You can spend $2,000 on a Peloton bike and like you can't even ride your bike anywhere. It just sits in your living room. It's interesting to me how a lot of companies have found ways to profit off of this notion of striving for perfection. And that gets played out not only in terms of of what you look like, but also in terms of how much you're asked to spend on these things that supposedly will get you where you wanna go. I think that's an interesting dynamic uh, to this sort of exercise, like wellness industry. So I will put the intertwining of capitalism and diet culture on the bench. Well, I'm gonna put on the bench um, gay culture. One of the things that I didn't realize when I first got into um, the gay world, (laughs) I was born into it. I just became aware of it, became honest about it. Anyway, is how obsessed we are with bodies. It's most explicit in, well, it's, I don't know if anybody else knows this except me, but have y'all heard like the names that we use to call different gay men, like in their body types? So there's a whole hierarchy for gay men. And there is a hierarchy. Some gay men would disagree, but at the top, at the bottom of the pecking order are otters. So otters are thin or athletic types. Um, they can be any age, um, but just very thin, not necessarily muscular. That's an otter. The next one up is a wolf. A wolf is an otter with hair. Same body type, but often has hair. And then the next one is a bear. Everybody's heard of bears. So hairy men with bellies. Then there's the cub. So it's like somebody that has the sort of bear shape, but is smaller, often a bottom. Then there's the chubs. Then there's the pups. Then there's the bulls. Then there's the twinks. And then there's the twonks. The twonk is a muscular twink. Gym bunnies, jocks, gym rats. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And the fact that there is even this precise language to describe bodies. It is about nothing other than bodies is a problem. Can we please, please, please stop using these words to describe one another and figure out what everybody has to offer beyond a one night stand. I mean, you can, I'm not trying to shame you for one night stands, handle your business. I'm just saying you ain't got a name. You ain't got to be a chubby chaser. You ain't got to be somebody that only likes gym rats. Just fuck who you fuck. And stop finding a way to name it all the fucking time. Because it's about fucking. Katie's looking really confused right now. It's all about fucking, Katie. That's all it's about. <laughs> like, what, what What? other reason would I have for trying to name someone's body? No, I get it. I mean, it happens in, in lesbian culture as well. I mean, th- there's lots of... Um, what are y'all's names? Well, no, no, no. We don't... But... But they're like, well, you've got butch and femme, right, kind of things. But but I've read tons of things by women who um, identify as femme who get a lot of critique from get, from lesbians. Um, and, and so, they're, yes, it's not the same as gay men. Gay men are horrible. But uh, It's not about fucking. <laughs> with lesbians, it's definitely not about sex. <laughs> lesbians is like, are we, have we been dating for two weeks? Let's move in together. Here's a you all. That's what it's, it's about. the second thing. That's the joke. Not two weeks. <laughs> the second thing. But go Does ahead. straight people do this? Do y'all have body types? 
like names, like a hierarchy, like a body type hierarchy? When I was in college, um, a friend of mine used to, so yes, there were definitely like stereotypes of like different bodies and stuff like that. But the one that stuck out, the one that I remember most vividly, I had a friend who would say, um, oh, she's a, she's a first and 10 girl. She's a first down. And what he meant by that was she looked best on the first impression from 10 yards away. I think that's a really like prevalent part of male heterosexual culture. Butterface. Have y'all heard of this term? Like I heard, I heard straight men talk about butterface. Like everything looks good about her except her face. So like there are these ways of naming, but I think the, perhaps the difference is for straight men not just straight white men, but straight men in general. Because I heard that from family members, and all of my family is black except my cousin Tawanda. Hey, girl. Uh, wait, she's not black. What'd you say? She's not black. Tawanda's white, but her name is Tawanda. <laughs> I know the name. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I'm not gonna do that for me. Oh, but that should tell you something. But I think there are these names, but they're more secretive, I guess, and straight male circles. And the gays are like, "Ooh, let's just put all our shit out there for everybody to see and hear." I mean, I'm thinking about um, popular culture as well, right? So, like, when you talk about butterface, or I think when I was in high school, it was the term was like butterhead. Uh, everything looks good, butterhead. Same thing, face. Um, I mean, you think about like Nelly and Tip Drill, things like that. That I mean, it, it speaks to some other issues within culture, within mainstream media, and it's so embedded in just everyday life. And we're, we're brainwashing generations through almost every outlet. All of it has to go on the bench forever and always. There's no getting off. We need like a certain section of the mourner's bench that's like pointing to return, like yeah. do not pass, go, do not collect $200, go straight to jail. Yeah. We need that section of the mourner's bench. Mitch McConnell is yes. already inhabiting that section and the Grim Reaper until he starts killing the right people. Yes. That's a wrap on today's episode of The Mourner's Bench. Thank you so much for listening. And many thanks once again to you, Natalie, for joining us. No problem. Hey, if you're like me and you're enjoying The Mourner's Bench, take a moment to subscribe wherever you may be listening. If you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the podcast. I've done it. You can too. And if you're still listening at this point, you really do love us. You can deny it if you want, but you know it's true. We both know it's true. Most folks have tuned out by now. So you're the lovers we're talking to. Um, we'll be your dirty little secret from now on. Just sneak on over to patreon.com slash Media and drop a little love offering in the basket. We'll be back on Thursday with another episode. Until then, peace. Bye. I just want to, I don't know if y'all can see this, but because Brandon made this comment that I said Katie marched with Dr. King, I just want to show y'all that I was not lying. If you look here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You've been working that whole time. <laughs>